Good morning, good evening, good late night, depending on where you are in the world. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to be talking a little bit more about, as we're getting into the new channel, uh, we're helping people understand where healthcare is going to be in the future, where it's moving. Um, wouldn't it be nice to know what really drives your doctor's current actions, like rushing in, writing a script and rushing out, and whether that's going to change or not, and if so, how it will. It'd also be nice to know if your doctor's going to be really focused on actually helping you prevent disease, or again, just writing scripts and doing procedures so he or she can bill your insurance company. Um, doctors are like every other human uh, or other humans, in general, they tend to do what they get paid for. And uh, right now, insurance companies are still paying doctors for writing scripts. They're not paying do uh, doctors for making patients well. And they're certainly not paying doctors to keep patients from getting sick. That is a long way off, except in some places. Uh, you see Medicare Advantage. That's uh, one of the places we started talking about. It's called fee for value, and we've covered uh, some of that uh, on this channel. We've created a whole second channel and second uh, website to help your doctor and other doctors understand what this is all about. It's called the Doctors Preventive Network. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later on this morning. <clears throat> but first, a quick discussion about what the channel is about and um, some of the content that you can find on our channel. Basically, this channel is about helping people um, avoid death and disability. Wouldn't that be nice? Death, avoiding death, disease, and disability, uh, whether your insurance company pays for that or not. One of the biggest reasons for that, by far the biggest individual reason for that, is not recent infectious diseases and pandemics, although it's wrapped up in that pandemic. Uh, people with this problem were much more likely to have disability and death if they had this problem associated with the, uh, the pandemic, associated with other things. This problem is the biggest cause of death and disability. It's, it's prediabetes, diabetes, insulin resistance. It's uh, most common as we age. As we age, our um, muscle tissues lose their uh, surface area connection to our capillaries. Now, that sounds diving real quick, way deep into science. And sometimes we do that on this channel. But a lot of things come out of that. Things like, what's the best way to deal with this? Well, one of the best ways to deal with this is diet. Uh, there are two components to diet, which are two outcomes from diet that just make a huge difference. The first is how often you uh, spend time above a blood sugar of 140 or elevated uh, insulin, because both of those things damage the vessels, the blood vessels, the arteries. And that's where all this damage is occurring, damage to microscopic arteries, uh, larger arteries, blood vessels. Back to the other component of diet. The other component of diet is 
your body composition. If you're eating too much, if you've got too much fat, if you're uh, eating the wrong kind of foods that make you fat, we just, wh why am I focused on fat? Uh, some people have told me I'm like a Darth Vader in terms of fat. It's not for, um, and I am, it's not for cosmetic reasons. We found out, uh, we, the scientific medical community, found out over a decade ago that we were wrong about body fat. We always thought that it was an inert energy storage tissue, and that's wrong. It's actually an endocrine tissue, and it drives insulin resistance. So is the obesity epidemic the cause of uh, the diabetes epidemic? It is one cause, but it's not the number one cause. The reality is that aging is the number one cause of the diabetes epidemic. And along with the diabetes epidemic comes an epidemic in, or a pandemic in heart attacks, stroke, blindness, kidney disease, erectile dysfunction, other types of disability. So when you go back to the importance of diet, you see why we covered some of the things that we've covered uh, very recently, caloric restriction versus intermittent fasting. Um, recently, we also covered another component about how healthcare is changing, primary care. They're changing paradigms, fee-for-service versus fee-for-value. We explained some of that uh, basic differences between how doctors are treating you in one type of insurance environment versus how they tend to treat you in the other. In fee-for-value, they tend to try to prevent your disease. That's what they're motivated to do. In fee-for-service, they're motivated to write another script and get you out of the door so they can go see the next patient and write another script. Very, very different types of healthcare. Uh, supplements are always very popular on any uh, YouTube health-related channel. So we cover things like red yeast rice. Uh, is it a safe alternative to statins? And the spoiler alert would be probably not. Um, but you can go take a look on the channel and get that information, get the details. Now, <clears throat> what's frustrating about what I do is that it's really clear. Uh, um, I focus on the science, I focus on the evidence, and the science, the evidence is very clear that your typical primary care doc, even in the U.S., does not understand how to diagnose prediabetes, insulin resistance. I mean, that's not something that I've made up. That's not something made up by others. It's surveys that were done of the knowledge and practices of primary care doctors, uh, internists, family practitioners, general practitioners, even uh, cardiologists who think they are practicing a lot of preventive cardiology. Uh, over two thirds of them do not know how to diagnose insulin resistance. So there's a big problem if you're a human being in our country, as well as other countries in this world today, and you want to avoid heart attack, stroke, death, and disability. Because the leaders that we depend on, the primary care profession, doesn't know what they're doing in this space. So you have to learn something on your own. It's not that difficult. It sound, may sound very daunting, but it's not. Within just a few hours, a couple of hours per course, 
Um, you can learn more about insulin resistance, how to diagnose it, how to deal with it, how to manage it, cardiovascular inflammation, and plaque evaluation. Um, I've mentioned many times on the channel that uh, we, I have a passion. We have a passion for getting that information out there. So we've offered these courses uh, for months, years now, and um, the usual price has been $49 uh, for each course. Um, in about two hours, you can end up knowing more than two-thirds of doctors about how to prevent heart attack and stroke. Um, someone pointed out to me recently, we need to clarify whether or not we want this, we want to provide it for free or charge for it. And what we're going to do is we're going to just say, look, we will provide this for free. We would uh, suggest a donation to help us get this information out to the world to save more lives. If you're a, um, a YouTuber, think about uh, joining the YouTube channel to help us get that information out. If you're more of a locals or a rumble person, we have those, we have content there as well. In fact, we have some separate content on locals, which only goes there if you're a locals person. We, um, I had a patient uh, just earlier this week ask me about Zipatamag. It was a, or Zipitamag. It was a patient that was just finding out that, yep, she had plaque. And we talked about whether or not she should be on a statin. And she asked about a less expensive alternative to patabastatin. And this is it. It's called Zipitamag. It's not, you could argue the point whether or not it is a, um, a, a uh, gosh, I'm blanking on the term, having another senior moment here. Um, <clears throat> generic drug. The reason you can argue whether it's a generic drug or not, drug or not is that it's, it has to, to do with some technical components. It's the type of cation. The cation meaning calcium versus another type. I believe this one may be a potassium cation instead of a calcium cation. Otherwise, the same drug. Now, um, <clears throat> there's a group called Marley Drug, as you see on the video here, and they're offering it you end up uh, getting it about a dollar per day, which is a significant discount over what you'd pay if you get it, uh, if you pay for yourself. Um, a lot of insurance companies still don't want to pay for patabastatin. It hasn't lost its patent. Why so much argument and uh, desire and uh, debate over how much you have to pay for it? Because it hasn't lost its patent. Well, what's the advantage to patabastatin, Lavalo? Here's the advantage. It is still the only statin, which does not, uh, it's got the lowest, by far the lowest side effect profile. Um, it's the only one that doesn't drive uh, insulin resistance. Uh, Crestor, uh, generic um, resuvastatin, does drive it, but really only in the upper doses. I personally take Crestor five milligrams a day and uh, am totally comfortable with uh, minimal impact on insulin resistance. So those are really the two statins that I use. And I don't use statins nearly as much as most other doctors do. Most doctors use statins based on your uh, LDL level. I tend to see LDL as more of a reaction to what else is going on in terms of cardiovascular inflammation. 
and insulin resistance, um, failing carb metabolism. So I really only recommend statins if you have plaque. And we'll talk about that. It's some, we've talked about that many, many times on other videos. I'm not going to go that far down that bunny hole today just yet. The Medicare uh, CCM program is just another component of fee-for-value. What that does, it, we're offering that now with our programs. We're not, uh, we're not up and rolling yet uh, with Medicare, but we're offering that uh, to folks that are on our subscription plan, for example. CCM, chronic care management, it is a way for you to connect with your primary care doctor or preventive doctor's office team on a daily or three times a, a week basis. Does, does that sound like too much? We've timed them. The, the average is less than 50 seconds to respond to these automated, uh, usually text-based, sometimes email-based uh, questions. How are you doing today? What's your way? Do you, are you uh, following your doctor's recommendations on diet? If, if so, are you watching your carbs? If so, how many carbs per uh, meal are you getting? Do you want to talk to somebody on your uh, on your doctor's team? So you're starting to find a difference in the way primary care works in the fee for value system. You're starting to find that there's much more um, constant contact and like it or not, that's what the way things are headed. And um, why is that? Because people that are doing this are staying well. That's what it's all about. <clears throat> so if you look on our comments, we, will, we have provided uh, links to our new website and our new YouTube channel where we're providing uh, information for your doc. Oh, and there, there we go. Thank you so much, Gilbert. This is the uh, new YouTube channel. Click on that. Now, I would also ask you, if you will please join that new YouTube channel. There's only three or four videos now. We're getting ready to add five more. Those, uh, it, it'll help in two different ways. Number one, it'll help you understand where medicine's going. But number two, it'll help us get to 100 subscribers. As soon as we get to 100 subscribers, Aspen uh, can change this, uh, this link to make it much more understandable. Gilbert, if you'll show the next link. So um, this next link is our new website, again, which is built for your doc. Refer your doc to us and uh, it, see if the doc would like to understand a little bit more how to get into the future of medicine. And it's going to help you because it's going to get your doc geared up to helping prevent disease. So... <clears throat> Now to get into some of the science content for today, if you look at uh, Science Advances, uh, one of the scientific uh, medical journals uh, from last year, they're looking at a protein that can reverse muscle aging. You know, that's a big, big deal. One of the biggest things that we find, um, especially after age 65, in our mid-60s, we really begin to lose muscle mass. That's one of the things that I coach patients to do. Do not neglect muscle mass and especially focus on the large muscle groups, the thighs, the hamstrings, the hips, the back, the calves. These muscle groups are the groups that tend to lose mass. They lose capillary interface with 
between the cardiovascular system and the muscle system. And that causes death because um, that is our major bypass for ailing insulin receptors. High intensity interval work is the number one way to improve that uh, microvasculature between uh, of the large muscle groups that we're talking about. So again, most people, when you talk about exercise, you know, they think getting uh, big arms. Uh, that's not what this is about. A lot of people think about uh, walking. Yes, walking is very important, but it's a baseline aerobic. It does, it's not nearly as effective at dealing with the uh, prevention of diabetes and insulin resistance as high intensity interval work. So how can you do that? Uh, it depends on where, what level you're at, what, what kind of conditioning you currently have. I do hill runs on, uh, on a treadmill when I, go to, um, uh, when I go to the gym three times a week. Um, and I also do a lot of squats um, and do them in a little bit more of a high intensity interval type of uh, fashion. So anyhow, to get back to the text here, this was an in vitro and in vivo study, meaning that some of the study was done um, in the test tube and some of the study was done in the, in the animal. Old muscle cells usually impede muscle regeneration. The authors stimulated the production of a protein factor called NANOG, N-A-N-O-G. NANOG has the ability to decrease the rate of muscle tissue aging through DNA repair. Reactive of uh, reactivation of, auto of autophagy and mitochondrial recovery. Increasing the uh, expression of NANOG. Uh, can we move that comment? Increasing the expression of NANOG um, actually helped increase the, uh, the regeneration of those muscle cells and induced new muscle growth at a much faster rate. Now, is that ready for prime time? No, they're doing it in uh, animal models right now, which basically means, well, correction, I misspoke. Today's major content is not science, it's healthcare manpower and finance. And how are we managing our healthcare? Which is very important because as we said, that's what drives your doctor's performance. So this is about, this was by the Department of Health. And they're talking about what's going to happen next. Uh, fee for value has become, is now very well situated within uh, Medicare. 48% of Medicare patients are being seen on a fee for value basis. And their goal is to get it to 100% by 2030. That's not going to happen. But they're still making huge progress. In fact, far more progress than they're making in private insurance. And that's really what this article was about. The article was, what's going to happen on the, the, uh, the private insurance space? Uh, Value-based healthcare is a healthcare delivery model in which providers, including hospitals and physicians, are paid based on health outcomes, not based on how many prescriptions you wrote. Under value-based care agreements, providers are rewarded for helping patients improve their health, reduce the effects and incidence of chronic disease, and live healthier lives. In other words, there's significant time there for patient engagement <clears throat> and education and looking at evidence. Uh, 
Now, they looked at a couple of possible scenarios um, in this PTAC uh, public health uh, meeting uh, regarding the total cost of care and the um, impact of, of how care is managed in the private health care and insurance industry. One was an industry-wide reimbursement standard change to fee-for-value, and the other was public and pri private pay payers split on risk. That The latter is what you have, except actually you have very little uh, private payers at this point uh, getting involved in risk. What you are likely to see, and what you're starting to see already, is both of them are split, both public as well as private payers. The public is way ahead. Uh, Medicare, by far, being the, the leader in this space. Other groups are getting there, um, and private groups are the laggards. Um, <clears throat> Value-based payment models in the commercial sector. There's a roadmap to population-based risk. There's upfront investment and focused on the partner's needs and employers have to agree to trade-offs. You know, employers are not there yet. And in, until employers begin to understand it, the insurance companies are gonna have a hard time understanding it. There are special challenges within this commercial group, again, it tends to be driven more by employers. Um, with commercial groups, they're looking at younger patients. Medicare is by definition 65 and older, except for certain disabilities. There's a different set of issues, uh, one of them being the risk of overutilization. Uh, so for, for example, uh, procedure after procedure because the patient just wanted a better and better outcome or thought they were gonna get a better outcome. Uh, joint replacements, low back uh, surgery, those kind of things tend to get done over and over again in that environment. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Medicare, on the other hand, is aiming to focus on chronic disease management, prevention, and uh, again, a, a slightly different set of goals. So here's a couple of the trade-off options they were looking at. The providers competing to find high cost areas and address uh, partnerships. So uh, what does that mean? The, the typical thing is, um, again, things like uh, joint replacements. And you'll see things like medical tourism, where people are saying, look, we're going to have an episode of care. And if you can get a joint replacement done with this level of quality and at uh, this cost, then we're gonna start moving our patients to that group, even if we have to pay travel expenses to get them there. Um, a more holistic approach with Medicare is looking at, again, uh, all of the, uh, the raft of, prevent of prevention and uh, patient engagement lifestyle components in order to decrease the, uh, the chronic diseases that are happening in that population. What's likely to happen? Again, you're gonna end up seeing mixes of both, uh, both approaches uh, because they deal with both populations. Are you not gonna see uh, uh, Medicare going into, or, or um, fee-for-value going into the employer market? No, you will see that. So I got this question 
from JMK2921. I challenged my cardiologist. This is a really good question. It's a lot of fun. It's taken us to a good place. I challenged my cardiologist recently about the predictive power of stress tests. He blew me off and said I was too fixated on, quote, vulnerable plaque. Your thoughts. I have some interesting thoughts on vulnerable plaque, and it may sound like a paradox or irony. You see, I did a couple of videos on the vulnerable plaque theory. Some groups think that they can find one vulnerable plaque and go in and stent that plaque area. They can't. That's been tried multiple times and it's been proven that doesn't work. So it sounds like neither your cardiologist nor I agree in the vulnerable plaque theory. However, that's so, you know, so what's the what's the issue here? What's the irony? What's the the paradox? Well, your cardiolo- your cardiologist may not believe in any types of plaque vulnerability. If so, she or he does so in blatant disagreement with just about every medical scientist, uh, cardiovascular disease scientist that's published over the past decade. They all agree and understand that that's just incontrovertible. So why, actually the irony may be then, why do I say that I don't agree with the quote, vulnerable plaque theory? Here's the issue. You can't find one vulnerable plaque. Plaque vulnerability is a cardiovascular inflammation issue and cardiovascular inflammation is a metabolic issue. In other words, With a few unusual exceptions, if one plaque is vulnerable, the majority of your plaque will be vulnerable and vice versa. If uh, one plaque is stable, then almost all of your plaque is gonna be stable because again, this is a metabolic issue. So let's see if that covered the rest of the question. Oh, okay. So, you know, if that's the case, then that begins to raise the question. Uh, If medical science is pretty clear that stable plaque doesn't cause infarctions, why are we doing so many stents? Well, you know what? Medical science is also pretty clear about that. Look at the the courage study, the... um, Oh, what was the other one? Orbita trials, O-R-B-I-T-A trials done in England where they actually randomized based on, um, just that randomized once they got the patient into the surgery uh, prep uh, lab at the, the, um, the experimental group had no stent. The other group had a stent. And they did this to help people because there is some subject com, subjective component to you know feeling pain associated with angina and associated with uh, heart attacks. So they did that, and guess what they found? Stents did not prevent heart attacks. So the reaction of the medical, the especially the the guys that did bypass surgery was well, okay. So we've proven it with Courage and Orbita that. Stents don't prevent heart attacks. 
that doesn't mean that they're not being done. In fact, they're being done far more than they were when this was proven that they don't prevent heart attacks. So what was the re reaction? Well, it's got to be angioplasty then. You know, do the full surgery, crack open the chest, get an um, internal mammary artery and redirect that artery. Well, guess what? They looked at that with the ischemia trial and guess what they found? Those don't prevent heart attacks either. So then that's got to raise yet another question. If this medical scientific community, we're talking about JAMA Network, New England Journal, other uh, world-leading scientific uh, medical magazines saying that stents and bypasses don't prevent heart attacks. Why are so many of them being done? Why are they still financing um, so many heart hospitals, cardiovascular clinics, cardiology clinics. Well, I think the key is in one word that I just used, because they are financing them. When you've got a whole industry uh, built on one type of revenue, it's hard, that creates an addiction. People's, you know, cardiologists and everybody that works for these clinics, these labs, they pay their bills, they pay their mortgage, they pay their car, uh, their car payments, they put their children through college, they put bread on the table literally in the morning if they're not on a low carb diet with money that comes from doing stents, stress tests, and bypasses. So it, don't expect to see, you know, even though the science has come out over the past decade and it's really clear, don't expect to see significant changes in those practices until they can make money and pay for their family's bills by doing something else. So, <clears throat> Uh, as we said, we've, uh, we've got a new uh, YouTube channel to help your doctor learn how to do this uh, fee for value. It's technical. It requires a whole different way from what your doc learned how to do when he or she came out of medical school. It does. It is actually closer to what they learned in medical school in terms of uh, actually finding out metabolic problems early on and help, helping the patient prevent those problems. But as soon as your doc got out into the fee-for-service world, things changed dramatically. And they either went fee-for-service or they starved. So this is very, very different from fee-for-service. If you'd like to get your uh, doc involved, uh, go ahead and refer them. Uh, <clears throat> let me see. Okay, Rick Folia. Good morning from Atlanta. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Melissa, good morning and happy new year to you as well. LPG, 12338, 12, 10 bucks. Thank you for another interesting topic. Thank you, LPG. And thank you for that super chat. Um, thank you, Gilbert, for showing the others how to do that. Again, this helps us get this information out across the world. Aura Ruth, good to talk to you, or good to hear from you, Aura, Aura Ruth. Good morning to you, Doc. Missed you, missed your live last week due to a family Hanukkah party. 
Very good. I hope it was a good Hanukkah. And I didn't mention we've had huge holidays, the Christian community celebrating Christmas and the Jewish community community celebrating Hanukkah. Um, pardon my lack of awareness, but I think there are a few other uh, major um, major celebrations going on over the past month. Melissa, do you think I should take niacin along with my Crestor? I have a high P LP little a and a heart attack in July. Well, <clears throat> um, it, here's the thing. Niacin is the only thing we know of that accomplishes these things. Number one, it decreases LP little a. Number two, it um, decreases LDL. Number three, it tends to improve HDL. Uh, number four, it tends to improve the fractionation of those items as well. Now, most folks that use it will say, yeah, but you're really not going to get an impact until you get to really high levels, two grams or more. I can tell you from my own experience in uh, following patients that take this and following patients that are getting a cardiovascular inflammation panel. You know, most docs don't look at that. But if you do, you begin to realize that it doesn't always take a full two grams of uh, niacin to start having these impacts. Um, the, uh, I, I will often see it at uh, 500 or even 250 milligrams. I had one patient that uh, we talked about it. She had uh, uh, an LP little a of 80. Um, I think it was 80. Uh, we talked about there is risk associated with that, not nearly the risk that you might have with somebody that has it in several hundred levels. But she took like, I think it was 250. And with that 250, it went, her uh, LP little a went from 80 down to like 20. Uh, that, that's unusual, but it happens. And again, it's worth taking a look at. Uh, one of the questions I would have for you, Melissa, would be just, you know, how high is your LP little a? Uh, Melissa, my cardiologist won't lower my Crestor from 20 milligrams to 10, so I'm cutting it in half. I switched to a new cardiologist, but can't see him until March. I actually think that was a good decision. Uh, if your cardiologist is just going to be that, um, you know, it's it's interesting Uh how paternalistic doctors can be, isn't it? I'll just leave it at that. Good choice though, Melissa. Alan Turner, what are your thoughts concerning the amount of radiation used during CT angiography? What is a reasonable amount uh, to time wait, uh, of time to wait between scans to limit radiation? Alan, that is a great, Great question. And you know what? I didn't think that there would be a lot of people interested in that. I'm going to go back. Um, will you please show the, the uh, slide on the book, Gilbert? Uh, <clears throat> in our intro, we often cover a book that I wrote, and we have a whole chapter on this issue. Um, it's called Prevention Myths, Why a Stress Test Won't Prevent a Heart Attack and What Will. Um, and it has to do with the overuse of CT angi angiograms. Now, in the vast majority of cases, C CT angiograms are not that much of a risk issue. 
here's where you get in. You, you used to get into that some in the past when they were more poorly uh, controlled. The quality uh, was not as good. Um, if you're having problems with CT angiogram and radiation now, it's usually in a, in a, um, a, radi uh, a radiology center that has extremely poor quality control. Here's where you get into significant radiation on these procedures. It's more with um, angiography and with um, starting young and repeating them every year. So you're, the typical person that really needs to be concerned about this is somebody who's young, like less than 30. And they had some spooky chest pain. They went to the doc. The doc is one of these guys who says, cha-ching, another chest pain. I can get another, I can charge another 10, 20, $25,000 for a radiation uh, stress test. And they do that. And then they say, okay, well, it looks like you're okay, but I recommend that we do this every year. So starting at age 30, they're getting this. And then they say, oh, you know what? Uh, you're in your mid fifties now and I see a little plaque. I think we need to do a stent. So doing the stent adds a, a huge additional component of radiation. So these are the folks that are getting into problems. The folks that started young, their uh, cardiologists wanted to just do it over and over and over again. Then they started adding stents to the process those are the folks that are actually getting into areas where they do have radiation risk. The vast, the vast majority of the folks that are watching this channel, uh, my patients, for example, are going to get nowhere near 5% of that level of radiation. Desitivity. Hi, Doc. Is there a place on the Physicians Network where a patient can see the names of uh, docs in his state. We're just getting it started. I, there will be one developed like that, and it's a great idea. Thank you so much. Paul Railsback, Paul Railsback. Um, looks like a new, a new YouTube member. Thank you so much, Paul. We appreciate that. You're helping uh, folks learn how to prevent heart attack and stroke and blindness and kidney disease and dementia. I keep forgetting to mention dementia. Wonder what's going on with that. Alan Turner, have you explored expanding your program into the VA? Yes and no. The VA is, gosh, if you think it's hard, <laughs> if you think it's hard to expand into Medicare, try expanding into the VA. Rick, Rick of the Gun One, good morning from North Carolina. Are you familiar with a test called HOMA IR? Yes, I am. Is it a reliable test for insulin resistance? It's better than, you see me shaking my head. You see the nonverbals and you're probably uh, interpreting them correctly. I see people that just think they're really smart, make comments about, well, I use HOMA IR. So here's the problem with HOMA IR. HOMA IR, although there's, you know, like many things, there's multiple different types of formats for it. The basic concept for HOMA IR is a ratio of the amount of insulin that it's taking to keep your 
glucose at a certain level. So it's a ratio between fasting insulin, fasting glucose. Now here's the biggest problem, hands down, and I'll just make it simple and stop there. I see it all the time with people that have wonderful HOMA IR ratios. They have a blood, a fasting blood sugar of 90, 85. They have a fasting or basal insulin of three. And then they go up into blood sugars of 250 and 300 when you challenge them. So here's the issue. It's like I go out into the street, I take a, uh, or the parking lot, we take a picture of me, I'm standing in front of a bus. But the, so everything looks great on the still shot, the HOMA IR, the fasting glucose, the basal insulin. But once you turn it into a moving picture, a movie, then you begin to realize I'm getting run over by that bus, just like patients are getting run over and killed by insulin resistance, even full-blown diabetes, when they're, they're fasting and uh, uh, glucose and basal insulin were just fine. So it takes a moving picture. Thank you so much, Ricky the Gun, for giving me that opportunity to go on that rant. Again, I do. I get so frustrated when people think they're being academic and one-upping folks and talking about using HOMA IR. JMK, 2921. Contrary to what my cardiologist told me, I was under the impression that the latest ultra-resolution coronary CTA can clearly identify restenosis of a stent or patency of highly calcified arteries. Uh, I think the real question is reliable, clearly and reliably. And I think you left out the component of the two words and reliably. I don't think it's reliable either at this point. I may be proven wrong. I mean, we're looking for it to get to that level. One of the other components is where you've, you've got the same kind of, you're at about the same place on CTA being able to, um, to show soft plaque in some places with this ultra sensitive, uh, high resolution. Yes, you can clearly see soft plaque, but in other places you can. So it's just not reliable yet. Good question though. Really good point, JMK. Uh, Destitivity, sorry for the bunny hole. That's all we do in the Q and A is bunny holes. But do you have an opinion on uh, like VO injections for uh, LDL lowering. I'm not a company person. Ah, oh, gosh, you know what? I don't have an opinion. I'll just leave it at that right now. Melissa, good for you. Uh, Shannon Gardner, any info about dysfunctional HDL? Seldom spoke of topic. The reason it's seldom spoken of is you rarely see it. Uh, the only time you should ever even worry about dysfunctional HDL is when the number, when the HDL is over a hundred. And how many people do you know with an HDL over a hundred? That's item number one. And item number two, I just can't, uh, can't resist going down that bunny hole is the question of how much of HDL is really an actor versus a reflection of uh, other parts of the metabolism like carb metabolism. Uh, 
If it's really much more of a reflection of carb metabolism, then doesn't that bring into question the whole concept of dysfunctional HDL? Melissa, can stable plaque become vulnerable plaque anytime? Yes, it can. I'm thinking COVID infection might do that. Yes, COVID infection has clearly demonstrated that it can increase that cardiovascular inflammation. No question, especially long COVID. One of the things that I see demonstrated over and over again in long COVID patients is their insulin resistance tends to go out the roof. You know, they, they get these 80 point jumps in their insulin requirements. So, yes, very good point. Uh, Ariana Grande's ponytail. Ariana Grande's ponytail. What are your thoughts on the coronary calcium score test? I think it's a great test. Um, I'm 51, have a family history of heart disease. Uh, mother died of heart attack. Uh, is at 51? thinking of bringing it to, up to my cardiologist. I definitely at least get that. Um, here's the thing. Uh, we did a, actually Ariana Grande's ponytail. I'd suggest you get my book. Uh, the book goes into detail on how to evaluate plaque. And that's what a calcium score is all about. So there are three ways to not do it. Number one, rely solely on your doctor's understanding of the um, um, uh, of a calculator. In other words, what risks do I hear in my uh, age? Do they smoke, et cetera? That is, those, that's pretty far off. The next thing they'll say is, well, let's do a stress test. Stress tests are really bad. Um, they're only positive if you've got basically 50% or more um, blockage and flow. And the vast majority of heart attacks happen uh, with less in plaque that's less than 50% blockage. The, uh, the third thing they'll do is they'll say, let's go, uh, let's go do a, um, uh, let's go inject some dye, go to the cath lab and inject some dye um, into those arteries and see what we see. Um, arteriogram. That's not that good either. And in fact, you've once you've gone down that path, doctors are usually going to say, oh, while we have you under, we're going to go ahead and have you sign to let us put a stent in if we see anything while, while we have you in the cath lab and anesthetized. So that's like... Uh, 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 Hell's triplicate or something. It's a really bad uh, combination. There are three other things that I would recommend for evaluating plaque. Um, one is the calcium score. The calcium score is great. It gives you some understanding of how much plaque you have. It's not perfect though. Those of us who do CIMT, for example, understand that you can have plaque, but it all be soft and have, a, have zero calcium. In fact, um, that has actually been demonstrated, uh, despite the fact that the American Heart Association said back in 2018, look, if you've got a negative calcium score, you don't need statins. Uh, science since then has uh, demonstrated what 
many of us had feared, and that is, yes, there is risk for people with zero calcium scores because, again, these are people that have, uh, obviously have um, nothing but soft plaque. So uh, don't do the, to go back, you get about 20,000 feet, 30,000 feet. Um, uh, don't rely on the doctor's risk, you know, just verbal and brain related risk assessment. Don't rely on a stress test. Don't rely um, on an arteriogram. And because you're going to get headed right down that shunt into a stent, which, you know, doesn't hurt you so much, except the, the biggest damage that there, so many stents have been done. So many arteriograms have been done that the danger to those is not really so much with the procedure. The danger from those is thinking that your plumbing is fixed and therefore you don't have to change your metabolism. The metabolism is what causes the problem, cardiovascular inflammation. And again, four fifths of that, mostly related to insulin resistance, prediabetes, diabetes. And that is a lifestyle related issue. So we've talked about uh, th three things not to do. Um, and now again, let's talk about three things that, that do better. One is the calcium score. One is the CIMT. We've had multiple discussions about CIMT. It's an ultrasound of the arteries in the neck. If you've got plaque in the arteries of the neck, we know that you have plaque in your heart. Um, the advantage to that is it actually shows soft plaque, which is the critical piece of what we want to know. We've talked about soft plaque or vulnerable plaque uh, multiple times already in this show today. Then the last item we've also talked about too, CT angiogram. So I do a lot of CIMT. I do a little bit of um, calcium score and a little bit of CT angiogram. I don't do um, um, stress tests. I don't do arteriograms and I don't do stents. So thank you very much. That was a great question. I think we are, oh gosh, I thought we were, oh gosh, we've got a lot more here. We're going to have to move quickly here. Uh, Bradley, doc, I've been doing daily cold water plunges followed by sauna, then exercise. My CGM indicates a significant decrease in glucose levels. Thoughts? Um, I'm not completely surprised. Uh, it's good to hear about that. I'm a believer in uh, heat shock proteins and cold proteins, both of which are stimulating when you're doing that, you're probably stimulating your cardiovascular system as well. Um, I'm a big fan of sauna and cold therapy. Uh, I don't think they're a replacement for diet. You know, it's just like diet and exercise. Diet's number one, number two, and number three, and then exercise is number four. And sleep is number five. And then Heat shock, cold shock, those things come in later. Uh, Carol Adams, good morning from Atlanta. I am due to see my cardiologist soon. I'd like to go to a doctor that is in line with your kind of thinking and treatment. Can, you, can I recommend one in the Atlanta area? You know, that's, unfortunately, I cannot. I am sorry, but um, I can't. I'm comfortable seeing you. I see patients all over not only all over the US, but all over the world. Um, Harry, Harvey Ops, Doc, is niacin 
regarding niacin. Please emphasize which type, niacin, nicotinic acid. Well, unless I'm mistaken, niacin is nicotinic acid. It's not uh, uh, niacinamide riboside, NR. We covered actually NR last week and talked about how it's a supplement that's been very popular as a, quote, risk or flush-free niacin. And then one of the things that came out recently was it is a significant risk factor for um, if, if you have uh, things like a breast cancer, it really tends to feed those cancer cells. So um, be careful about supplements. I agree uh, with the warning. I'll tell you, the vast majority of my patients that are on niacin are on um, endurance, uh, uh, it's basically just a wax matrix um, and that releases the niacin slowly. Uh, I take it. Um, <clears throat> they used to use a chemical called lapropriant. Uh, different groups did because lapropriant decreased that niacin flush. Uh, a couple of studies like the HPS2 Thrive and or 3 Thrive and one of the others um, basically demonstrated no improvement in risk associated with lapropriant. So what it looks like was the lapropriant, when it did away with the flush, also did away with the positive impact as well. You see, niacin acts as a prostaglandin. A prostaglandin is a locally acting, um, like a locally acting hormone. That's one of the practical uh, definitions of it. <clears throat> Eight of hearts. Thank you, doctor, for taking your time to share this valuable information. What's the ideal ApoB level? How much niacin should one take? And I heard of Dr. Brad Stenfield say greater than 50 milligrams doesn't really have more uh, benefit. I would uh, disagree with the statement just wholeheartedly, hands down. I disagree with the statement that uh, 50 milligrams and above has no difference in impact. That's just, that's not true. Um, I don't remember the, the numbers on ApoB, but I have to tell you, I, I need to memorize that. I've told myself multiple times, look, you got to memorize ApoB levels because uh, since um, Peter Atia had that guest on that talked about uh, it's ApoB, it's ApoB, it's ApoB. It's as if that were something new. ApoB is the protein that forms uh, LDL, VLDL. Um, it forms all of the cholesterol particles except HDL. HDL is, or an LP little a. Um, it, it, APOA1 is the protein. You know, cholesterol, people get so confused about this. Cholesterol is cholesterol. It's not, there's no such thing as a good cholesterol and a bad cholesterol. We're finding that out in multiple ways now. But even in the very beginning, we should have seen, and, and I remember thinking when I first heard the term good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, how can there be good cholesterol and bad cholesterol? It's cholesterol is the same, right? It's There's no differences. Here's what the difference is. The protein that forms the cholesterol particle, and that's called an APO protein. There are two major types of apoprotein, APOA1, which forms HDL. It holds less cholesterol. Uh, and so it's more dense, it's more protein, so therefore it floats less. That's why it's called high density lipoprotein, HDL. Um, LDL 
can hold more, it can hold a, create particles with much more cholesterol in them. That's why you get low density lipoproteins because the fat, the cholesterol floats. And then you get very low density, VLDL, and then IDL, intermediate, intermediate density lipoproteins. What are all these about? So let me go back to the very, very uh, beginning. I used to keep a little um, bottle of water here with, with um, olive oil in it. And I would shake it up and we would see that the olive oil tended, and I don't have that here uh, at this studio, the olive oil would do what we expect. It would form a glob at the top. Well, that glob can kill you. Just it would become a, what we call a fat embolus, and a fat embolus, fat emboli kill people just like uh, blood clot emboli do. Why do we not get a fat embolus every time we eat a salad with olive oil, or a steak, or a hamburger, or anything with any fat in it? Because of these proteins, these ApoA1 and ApoB were built specifically to take fat and form tiny particles that are what we call lipo, I mean, uh, hydrophilic. Hydro meaning water, philic meaning loves water. So you take something that's hydrophobic, like a fat, and then turn it into something that's hydrophilic, and you do that with a protein. The proteins that form HDL are ApoA1, and the proteins that form LDL, IDL, VLDL are ApoB. And since Peter Atia had that guest on his channel talking about how the real important thing is ApoB level, everybody's now asking me about ApoB. Uh, if you've got a high LDL, you're going to have a high ApoB. So it's a little bit circuitous in terms of uh, logic. That episode really didn't teach me a whole lot other than to beware of how many patients I have and viewers I have that are watching Peter Atia. Melissa, my LP little A is 350 to answer you. Okay, that's uh, that's moderate risk. It's certainly not seven or 800, but 350 is significant risk. Is it safe to take niacin with Crestor? Yes. Um, you know, there are problems with anything. There's problems with any statin. There's problems with um, any supplement. But plenty of people take niacin with statins. Uh, JMK2921, Texas cardiologist, Dr. Nadir Ali. Yes, I've heard that name. I've seen plenty of his Vita, uh, videos. Reported he's seen patients with very high LP little a, and some of those patients have perfectly clean coronaries. Is LP little a a firefighter versus arsonist? That's a great question. It's very similar to the question, and I think Nadi or Ali has the same question about LDL. And <clears throat> um, I think there's, I think it's a very, very good question. Um, have we answered that completely yet? No, I don't think we have. Um, over the past year, I've begun to lean more and more towards uh, Nadir Ali's position that it's the firefighter, uh, both LDL and LP little, LP little A, not so fast. Uh, William Clifford, my new cardiologist, scheduled a chem chemical stress test with myocardial perfusion imaging to see if you're going to have a heart attack. Should I do it? 
uh, 1.523, uh, 1.5, oh, January 5th, 23, or look for another doc, 71 years old. Well, William, as I, you know, I hate to say this and it's true, but it's true. Uh, I can't give any person, any individual advice over the internet. It's just, it would be crazy for me to do that. Uh, I can make some general statements and I've made the general statement many times in the past that it's rare, if ever, that I order a stress test. The only time I can remember ordering stress tests over the past 10 years is when a patient just really, really wanted me to. Uh, Rick of the Gun One, since they are part of the circulatory system, how are varicose veins and hemorrhoids assessed in relation to arterial health? Are they also influenced by insulin resistance? Uh, they're not, and that answers both of the, the statement and uh, both questions. They're just not evaluated in terms, it's, this is arterial health, it's not venous health um, that we're worried about. And it makes all kinds of sense that the veins would have some, would be related to this issue. I have no, I, I agree with you hundred percent. However, the reality is they're not. Once you get deep in there and you start looking at it, the veins just are not a player. William Clifford, 999 Superstar. Thank you so much, Will, William. We appreciate that very much. Uh, DF Allah Beni Hamad. Uh, hi, love your videos. What are your side effects for Concor 5 grams? on the long run. Concor? I don't know what Concor is. Maybe if you listed the generic name. Thanks for joining. Thanks for the comment. Uh, but maybe if you could give me the generic name of what you're talking about. Um, William Clifford, thank you for getting newest information out to common people that uh, that's in an understandable mode. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's, this is, it's not easy to, to make that, some of those translations. I appreciate the comment. Um, Rick Willer, $10 Super Chat. Uh, it, uh, uh, Gilbert, if you could show the Super Chat button, I would appreciate it. Hi, Dr. Brewer. I hate three. I take 3,000 milligrams of niacin, uh, nicotinic acid, broken into three times a day. Wife tried it and got a rash. What other type of slower release dose? 2,000. Uh, do you use, so I, as I said earlier, it's a good question, Rick. And I said some of the, I answered some of this earlier. I've got plenty of patients that get uh, significant responses with doses as little as 250 milligrams. I really never go over 2000 in terms of my recommendations uh, or two grams um, just because of the continued increase in a, uh, with problems like liver uh, damage. The third question that's embedded in that is uh, what other types? And again, there are two types that I have used a lot in the past. There are two brand names. One is Rugby, R-U-G-B-Y, and the other is Endurison. Both of those have had much, much better results for people that just don't tolerate that rash very well. The Endurison has had better uh, response than any of them or better performance. Melissa, I can't remember what test you think is best for diagnosing diabetes or prediabetes. It's called the insulin survey. It's like an OGTT, oral glucose tolerance test, but you, where you fast, you come in, you take a blood and you get the insulin and the glucose. 
Then you drink the 75 or 100 grams of glucose, half hour, one hour, two hours later, or one and two hours later, depending on the lab. Then you get, you repeat the insulin and glucose levels. That's what I meant by moving picture. When I was talking earlier about the HOMA IR, HOMA IR is basically just the first uh, thing where you get a fasting glucose and insulin level. Uh, eight of hearts. Can you please explain the microbiome and creatinine ratio and what it means for cardiovascular health? What's your take on creatinine being used to calculate EGFR? Dr. Atiyah mentioned using cystatin. I haven't heard uh, Peter's discussion about using cystatin. Uh, the standard is to use um, creatinine. We do know that there are problems with using creatinine alone. Um, uh, microbiome and creatinine ratio. So uh, I have, I've done several videos on the inflammation testing. I haven't done any recently. So it is one of the most functional components of the cardiovascular inflammation test. What it's measuring is your loss of creatinine, a protein released by muscles um, through the kidneys in your urine. And your typical level that a lab will say is high is anything above 30. The lab then says anything below 30 is normal. Well, that's not the case. What we're talking about is classified as micro proteinuria, microscopic amounts, protein, urea in the urine. So uh, for males, it's any, anything above three to five. And for females, it's anything above 13 to 17. Those are gray areas. Below that is totally fine. And then above that is classified as microproteinuria. Microproteinuria has been uh, demonstrated as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Here's what's going on. In the kidney, each kidney has what, about a million filters. They're called glomeruli. The glomerulus is simply a place where the media, the muscle layer, fades away, and you've got nothing but the intima layer. So the intima layer is actually a filter level, or a filter. And uh, stuff that passes through that filter gets collected into the urine. Now, um, <clears throat> here's the thing. So when we've talked about cardiovascular inflammation many times. Cardiovascular inflammation is basically injury or dysfunction of that intima layer, the lining of the artery wall and therefore the, also the filter layer of the glomerulus. So here's the thing. If protein is leaking through the uh, intima, then you've probably got cholesterol, HD, or, uh, especially small dense LDL, leaking through that intima. If they're leaking through that intima throughout your arteries, then you're forming plaque. That is how microalbumin-creatinine ratio works. And Jesus, if you'll take that, um, that section and make a short out of that, I would appreciate it. Uh, Gilbert, if you'll let him know that, you know, I would appreciate it. Critical Chris, where can I find a, a teledoc or remote telemedicine doctor who could make a doctor's recommendation for a coronary calcium score? <laughs> Chris... <laughs> 
do you know what I do for a living? Pardon, pardon the sarcasm. Uh, that's what I do for a living. Uh, Gilbert, in case critical Chris really didn't know that, if you could show uh, Michelle's telephone number, I would appreciate it. 859-721-1414. That's 859-721-1414. And good luck in your next steps, critical. Uh, uh, Super Chat, LPG12338. Happy early new year. Same to you, uh, LPG. I appreciate it. We'll get that information out across the world so people can start getting their calcium score orders. Rick Folia is CGM. Regarding CGM, any preference on which one? You know, it's uh, everybody tells me or used to tell me and still do though, uh, that the Dexcom 6 is by far the best. You can adjust it. You can uh, zero it out, et cetera, et cetera. It's also, you know, it used to be seven or eight hundred bucks. I think now you can get them for much less, but still not nearly the 70 bucks that you can that you pay for a, uh, a freestyle Libre. Uh, those are the two that I look at. Um, I actually, a couple of years ago, did a comparison. I wore a, uh, I purchased and wore a Dexcom 6 um, on my belly while I had a Freestyle Libre on my arm. Guess which one did better? The Libre, which just totally surprised me. Now, people complain, especially about the Libres, you'll get a, you'll get a, a bad uh, sensor sometimes. And it was a couple of years before I got a bad sensor. And I remember getting a bad sensor and it was like, dang, that really didn't work. Now I'm beginning to see why people complain. But here's another common complaint. Well, doc, mine was 10 off. I can't, that's too, that's too far off. I can't, you know, I checked it with my finger stick. Well, let me just repeat this. I've had at least three patients this week who had their fasting blood glucose done and a metabolic profile and an OGTT or insulin uh, response or uh, insulin survey done at Quest Labs. You really don't get better a better reference lab than Quest Labs. And in one, you know, so they're getting same patient, same time of day, same blood draw, same lab tech, same lab, but two different machines that are off. So to say that a CGM is inaccurate because it can be 10 off, um, it just you just don't understand the realities of medical laboratory medicine toler tolerance levels. So to get back, I usually use, uh, uh, pardon the bunny hole, I usually use um, uh, the Freestyle Libre, but I'll use others as patients request. I just want them to use it. Ricky the Gun 1, a diet that is meat intensive is low carb and should be good for insulin resistance. But what are your thoughts on the, the effects of inflammation and overall health? Uh, my thoughts go with the evidence and the scientific evidence has just started coming out a lot in terms of there have been not one, but two significant meta-analyses that came out. Some uh, somewhat as a result of the uh, increased um, awareness by uh, Nina Teicholz's book, The Big Fat Surprise. And both of those meta-analyses showed that saturated fat does not in cause increase for heart attack and stroke or cardiovascular inflammation. Critical Chris, I'm new to your channel. Thanks to, for speaking to my, 
thank you, Critical. I appreciate your explanation and pardon my earlier sarcasm. <clears throat> uh, Desitivity, Dr. Pomutter focuses heavily on lowering uric acid. Do you think patients you see with metabolic syndrome would usually show high uric acid in their blood? Yes, it's very common to see um, elevated uric acid for folks with metabolic syndrome. Uh, we have come to the, we made it to the end of the questions for today. Thank you so much for your interest and thank you so much for joining us critical. And I'll try not to be sarcastic next time. Um, have a, have a good holiday. If you're, uh, if you're uh, celebrating holidays now. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.